this is Jesse, and I just wanted to uh, add a note to the beginning of this podcast. We had a technical error in recording Sunday's sermon, and so about 15 minutes of it is a re-recording that Doug did, and then we'll fade into the actual sermon in the second half. So when you hear the changeover in the audio, everything's all right. It's just uh, half of it was recorded in studio, and half of it was live on Sunday night. We also didn't record the scripture from the night, which is John 1, 1 to 4, the word of life. In the beginning was the one who is called the Word. The Word was with God and was truly God. From the very beginning the Word was with God. And with this Word God created all things. Nothing was made without the Word. Everything that was created received its life from Him, and His life gave light to everyone. Enjoy today's sermon. Garrison Keeler begins a chapter titled Protestant in his book Lake Wobegon Days like this. In a town where everyone was either Lutheran or Catholic, we were neither one. We were exclusive brethren, a branch that believed in keeping itself pure of false doctrine by avoiding association with the impure. Some brethren assemblies, mostly in larger cities, were not so strict and broke bread with strangers. We referred to them as the so-called open brethren, the so-called implying the shakiness of their position. Whereas we made sure that any who fellowshiped with us were straight on all the details of the faith as set forth by the brethren who left the Anglican Church in 1865 to worship on the basis of correct principles. Unfortunately, once free of the worldly Anglicans, these firebrands were not content to worship in peace but turned their guns on each other. Scholarly to the core and perfect literalists every one, they set to arguing over points that to an outsider would have seemed very minor indeed, but which to them were crucial to the faith, including the question, if believer A is associated with believer B, who has somehow associated himself with C, who holds a false doctrine, must A break off association with B, even though B does not hold the doctrine to avoid the taint? The correct answer, yes. Once having tasted the pleasure of being correct and defending true doctrine, they kept right on and broke up at every opportunity until by the time I came along, there were dozens of tiny brethren groups, none of which were speaking to any of the others. The church has always struggled to be faithful to Scripture while pursuing unity at the same time. And this winter, we're asking the question, how do we do that? How do we pursue oneness in a theologically diverse congregation? And here's our answer. All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non-creedal issues. There are two main ideas in this statement. The first one is the one we've been working on. We ask our members to affirm the Nicene Creed. We're spending the first weeks of our series asking the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to affirm the Creed? And we've said that to affirm the Creed is to believe in the gospel story outlined in the Creed. We've described believing as changing scripts. Everyone has a script, informed by our culture, our wounds, our fallenness. We all create stories to help us make sense of our lives. 
were the author, director, and star of these stories. But these scripts always fail us because we were never meant to be the author of our own story. We become believers when we reject the script we've been performing and take a part in the great play God is producing. Conversion is changing scripts. Believing is deciding that you are no longer going to be the author and star of your own story. Instead, you are accepting a role in the greatest play ever produced. Accepting your role in this great play will require a significant reorientation of your life, and that's what Christians call repentance. We can think of the drama of salvation as a play with four acts. Act 1, creation. Act 2, fall. Act 3, redemption. Act 4, new creation. The Christian life is like coming on stage somewhere in the middle of the third act and improvising. And if you're going to be doing that well, you have to know the whole story. Christians have summarized the story of the gospel in in different ways. Danny Bullington returned from two weeks in Kenya where he shared the gospel with Maasai tribesmen, and he used a story cloth with pictures to summarize the gospel message. The Nicene Creed is another way the church has told the gospel story for 1,700 years. The creed summarizes the four acts of the play for us. We looked at Act 1 last week. The play begins by introducing us to the main character of the play, the supremely powerful creator God. This powerful, almighty God is also a loving father. He cares for the first human beings like a father cares for his children. The opening act ends in Shalom, all is well. Adam and Eve are at peace with one another, with God, with all creation. But in every story, something goes wrong that has to be fixed. All stories have a central conflict, a major problem that must be resolved. The creed doesn't give many lines to the problem God must overcome in our play, but the answer is there nonetheless. We need saving. Act 2 explains why. We are sinners. We are all children of Adam and Eve. We all manage our anxiety by authoring false stories we think will make us safe and happy. We're all idolaters. Instead of turning to God for life-giving water, we drink from the muddy puddles of our addictions. The writer Donald Miller says the plot of many stories can be boiled down to this simple structure. A character has a problem, then meets a guide who gives them a plan and calls them to action. That action either results in a comedy or a tragedy. We end Act 2 in desperate need for a guide, for a hero who will save us. We need a Savior. Act 3 introduces us to our Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. The creed gives most of its lines to describing who he is, what he's done for us, and how we can become a part of his story. Now, you probably know that some scholars think that Jesus became God at Nicaea. They think that Constantine forced the church to accept the divinity of Christ at the Council of Nicaea for political reasons. They argue that Christians did not think of Christ as divine until the 4th century. A good example of this would be Lord Teabing in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. And he expresses this belief in his conversation with Sophie Nouveau. Sir Teabing, who's called the Royal Historian, tells Sophie that the church consolidated power by declaring Jesus divine at the Council of Nicaea. My dear, he being declared, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, 
a great and powerful man, but a man nevertheless, just a mortal, not the son of God. Right, Tebing said, Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? A relatively close vote at that. Well, if Lord Tebing is right, then believing in Jesus' divinity is not particularly important. The royal historian, though, has not read his church history very carefully. The Apostle John, writing a generation after Jesus, begins his gospel by declaring the divinity of Jesus. In the beginning was the one who is called the Word. The Word was with God and was truly God. The early Christians often referred to Jesus as the Son of God. For example, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews begins, Long ago, in many ways and at many times, God's prophets spoke his message to our ancestors. But now at last, God sent his son to bring his message to us. God created the universe by his son, and everything will someday belong to the son. God's son has all the brightness of God's own glory and is like him in every way. By his own mighty word, he holds the universe together. By the time of Nicaea, Christians had been baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for almost 300 years. Ordinary believers had been praying in the name of Christ for almost 300 years. We also find references to Christ's deity in letters written by Christian bishops long before the Council of Nicaea. Ignatius, who died in the early 2nd century, referred to Jesus Christ as our God several times in his letters to the Christians in Ephesus. Polycarp, writing around A.D. 150, calls Jesus the Son of God and our everlasting high priest in a letter to the church at Philippi. Justin Martyr, another 2nd century church father, wrote that Jesus, being the first begotten word of God, is even God. A century before Constantine, Irenaeus wrote, This is Christ, the Son of the living God. We even have letters from the enemies of the church confirming that Christians worship Jesus as God long before Nicaea. The Roman governor Pliny the Younger wrote to the emperor Trajan around A.D. 115 that Christians, quote, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light where they sang a hymn to Christ as to God. Another harsh critic of the early Christians wrote, You see these misguided creatures, from the moment they're converted, deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage. So the verdict of history is clear. Christians worshipped Jesus from the beginning. As New Testament scholar Ben Weatherington put it, Jesus' divinity was upheld within the first 20 years after Jesus' death. The Council of Nicaea was not called to debate whether or not Jesus was God. Christians worshipped Jesus as God from the beginning of Christianity. Constantine summoned the bishops to Nicaea that summer to decide how God the Son related to God the Father. Three men played a significant role in helping the church discern what the scriptures say about the son's relationship to the father. The first is Arius. Arius was a leader of the church in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria was the Boston of the early Roman Empire. Many of the church's greatest, most influential, and most controversial thinkers studied and taught in Alexandria. Arius believed in one God, but he did not believe in the Trinity. He believed that God the Father created Jesus before he created the world or people. 
In Arius' thinking, Jesus was more than human, but not fully God. This created, as you might expect, an enormous controversy among the churches. Letters flew back and forth between bishops arguing for or against Arius' position. The Bishop of Alexandria fired off a letter to all the other bishops in the empire denouncing Arius' teaching. But another bishop responded with his own letter, saying he believed Arius was biblically sound. Eventually, Emperor Constantine heard of the controversy from his personal chaplain. Constantine had hoped that Christianity would be the glue that would hold his shaky empire together. He was not happy when he heard the church's leaders were quarreling. Constantine had moved the headquarters of the Roman Empire to Constantinople, While he was building his palace there, he lived in nearby Nicaea. So in the summer of 325 AD, he paid for all the bishops of the church to come to Nicaea and settle the issue. About 325 of the 500 bishops were able to make it. It was the church's first ecumenical council. Bishop Alexander was shocked that Arius' teaching had become so popular in the church Today, it would be as if the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses was about to become the belief of the entire church. The heart of the gospel was at stake. Even belief in the Trinity was at stake. Bishop Alexander brought a young assistant to the council named Athanasius. Like Arius, Athanasius had also studied in Alexandria. After Nicaea, the young scholar would serve as a bishop for nearly 50 years. Athanasius saw more than anyone else what was at stake in the controversy. Alexander knew that if the church abandoned belief in the deity of Christ, the gospel would be lost. For only if Jesus is God can we truly be saved. During the council, Athanasius made this argument in this way. First, no creature can redeem another creature. Second, according to Arius, Jesus is a creature. And third, Therefore, according to Arius, Jesus cannot redeem humanity. Eventually, Arius' arguments uh, prevailed, uh, or actually, rather, eventually, Alexander's arguments prevailed. When we read the second line of the creed, we can see that the fathers were responding to Arius' false teaching. And by the way, Lord T. Bing is wrong when he says that the vote was close. Only two bishops dissented when the rest of the fathers approved these words. There's a lot more to this story, but we don't have time to go into it uh, here. So the Nicene fathers described the deity of Christ like this. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Now, that's a mouthful. What are we saying when we say we believe this, when we recite these lines in the creed? The name Jesus means God saves. The title Christ refers to his role as the Jews' expected Messiah. It literally means the anointed one. When we call Jesus the Christ, we are saying that we believe Jesus is the anointed one. The awaited Messiah, the Prince of David's line, who the scriptures predicted would one day come and usher in the kingdom of God. When we affirm the creed, we're also saying that we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord. The Greek word for Lord, kurios, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as a translation for the Hebrew word for God over 6,000 times. 
Therefore, any Greek-speaking reader at the time of the New Testament who'd read any of the Old Testament would recognize that the New Testament writers were calling Jesus God when they called him Lord. The Creed then says that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten not made. Now, why did the fathers add three clauses about Jesus being begotten not made? Because they were challenging Arius' interpretation of Colossians 1.15. That was his favorite verse. And uh, let me read it to you. Christ is exactly like God who can't be seen. He's the firstborn son, superior to all creation. Now, Arius read this, got up before the council and said, Brothers, this is what it obviously means. Christ is God's firstborn son. He is God's begotten God gave birth to the Son. God created the Son. Clearly the Son came into being at a certain point of time. The Son is a creature. Uh, The Son is not the Creator. And if you've ever had a conversation with our friends at Jehovah's Witnesses, that's the doctrine that that, um, they are bringing to your door. And the the interesting thing about uh, Arius was he was a master marketer. And so he figured out how to put his theology into little ditties, and he had people singing them all over the empire. And one of the things that uh, he had them singing was, there was a time when Christ was not. And that was his point of view. That Jesus uh, was not God fully, and had not existed with God in all eternity. Well, the fathers looked at that, and they argued uh, along two lines. And Because remember what they're trying to do at the council. They're asking the question, what does Scripture really teach about Christ's relationship with the Father? And, and the first thing that they said was, you know, there are many other texts that do say that Jesus existed for all eternity with God. We call this the pre-existence of Christ. We read one already, John 1. In the beginning was the one who's called the Word. The Word was with God and was truly God. From the very beginning, the Word was with God. Now Jesus himself will tell the Pharisees, I tell you for certain that even before Abraham was, I was and I am. It's one of the reasons they committed him of, or argued that he was committing blasphemy, because they heard him declare that he was preexistent. And then, of course, there's a great hymn found in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Christ was truly God, but he didn't try to remain equal with God. Instead, he gave up everything and became a slave when he became like one of us. Strong affirmation of Christ's preexistence, that he has lived for all eternity before he came to earth. Now, we're going to pull out of the technical in just a moment. Hang in here with me. Uh, The fathers also pointed out that the Greek word for firstborn, protokos, meant first in rank or supreme in power. In the ancient culture, a firstborn son of a king became king himself. And so when Jesus calls, when Paul calls Jesus firstborn, he's calling him the supreme ruler of all. Now, there's one other technical point we need to make before we can try to come out of this and have a little bit of application. The rest of the phrases in the section all emphasize that Jesus is indeed fully God. And to drive this home, they collected metaphors. God of God, very God of very God, light of light. 
And particularly, they added a phrase, and this became a big issue in the council, being of one substance with the Father. Now, in the Greek, that's one word. It's homoousios. From homo, meaning same, ousia, meaning substance. And the fathers believed that homoousios best represented the words of Jesus himself when Jesus said, I am one with the Father. So what they're trying to do in the creed is reflect biblical teaching. And so they added the phrase, being of one substance with the Father, because they wanted to stress that Jesus is fully God and that he actually shares the very essence of the Father. Now, the people following Arius wanted to use the word homoiousios from homoi, which means similar, and ousio, which means substance. You see the difference? They wanted to say that Jesus was of similar substance with the Father because they did not want to say that Jesus was fully God. And so the fathers argued about that. They prayed about it. And at the end of the day, they said, this is what we think best reflects uh, the teaching of Scripture. And that's why we say it today. Now, I had a, a good friend once say to me, you know, the scriptures really aren't clear on the deity of Christ, are they? I mean, it's kind of a murky thing. Isn't this something that a, a, a sincere Christian could disagree on? Uh, no. <laughs> there are a lot of things sincere Christians can disagree on. We're going to talk about that. But the church has believed, all Christians at all times, in all places, that Jesus Christ is fully God. There are numerous texts that they drew upon, and I won't go over many, but I wanted to just put a few in. Uh, Jesus shares the honors due to God. Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Jesus shares the attributes of God. Uh, he demonstrates his omnipotence when he stills the storm at sea with the word. Jesus shares the names of God. The New Testament writers call him God and Lord and Savior and Emmanuel. Jesus shares the deeds of God. The scriptures say that all things are made through him and that he one day will judge the world. Jesus even shares the seat of God's throne. Paul reminds the Ephesians, when he raised Christ from death, he let him sit at the right side in heaven. So, this isn't one of the murky uh, teachings of scripture. This is part of that core. Remember, that's what we're talking about, holding firm to the core and giving freedom to love and respect and learn from and grapple with everything else. But this is the core. And the core is that Jesus Christ is fully God. Now, you can say, I'm not sure I believe that. It doesn't make sense to me, or I question that. No, you're free to believe whatever you want to believe. But this is what Christians believe, is that Jesus is fully God. Well, I'm not sure. Do I belong here? Of course you do. Come on a journey. Let's keep exploring. But I want you to understand, this is part of the core. The belief that Jesus Christ is truly God. Now, uh, I imagine at this point that, that some of you are thinking, you know, Doug, I came here with a lot going on in my life. I really needed to be encouraged with a practical word. And uh, here you're talking about homoeutheus or whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> Doesn't this matter? Isn't it just about, just 
follow Jesus. Let's just keep it simple. Well, I, I do think it matters. Uh, today we, we, we think about salvation as a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's good. But we don't think that doctrine has anything to do with it. We don't think that what you believe has anything to do with your relationship with God. But at All Souls, one of the principles we were founded on was this Latin phrase, ad fontes. And ad fontes means back to the source. And the, the idea is that there are some things we can learn from the church fathers. And the church fathers believed that it matters what you believe about Jesus. <laughs> I mean, Arius, for example, would become a bishop for 47 years, spend 17 of them in exile just for arguing over this belief. Now, Sometimes I think I've contributed to this uh, little bit of fuzzy thinking. And let me give you an example and a small modification I think I'm going to make. In every pilgrimage class, I enjoy talking to you about all souls as being a centered set church. And uh, I'm told that in mathematics there are several kinds of sets. Boundary sets have clear boundaries. An apple is either an apple or it's not. And so the, the main question to see if you're in the set is whether or not you share the properties of the things in the set. So many churches are boundary-set churches. Uh, they come up with a, a, usually a longer list of beliefs, a list of behaviors. The way you know you're in the church is you believe all those beliefs and you do all those behaviors. The way you know you're out of the church is if you don't. Now another kind of set, I am told because I can barely count, I'm certainly not a mathematician, Another set in math theory is the centered set. And a centered set defines uh, the center and the relationship of things to the center. It's like uh, an atom. If you're moving towards the nucleus of the center, you're in the set. If you're moving away from the center, you're away from the set. And what I've always enjoyed and still believe is that all souls is a centered set church. If you are moving towards the center, Jesus Christ, well, you're part of us. If you want to move away... From the sinner, Jesus Christ, we love you, but you're moving away from us. It's a different way to think about it. I, I like it. It's very Christ-centered. It's very focused. But here's what I think I need to add. We have to define Jesus. It's not just Jesus as you understand him, Jesus as your higher power, Jesus take the wheel, or whatever country music song is your... It, 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 it's more than that. It is that Jesus. And again, if you're not sure yet, you're trying to figure it out, come on, we'll keep talking about it. You can stay here for 50 years, we'll keep talking about it, we'll love you. But the Christ that a Christian moves towards is divine. Okay? So that's part of the core. As the Apostle John wrote, if we reject the Son, we reject the Father. Now let's end by just asking this question. If Jesus is God, what does it mean for me personally? If Jesus is God, then he is able to save us. Tina Fey cannot save me. Billy Graham cannot save me. Only someone who is the infinite God could bear the full penalty for our sins. Only someone who is both human and divine could reconcile a fractured relationship between the human and the divine. Only someone who is truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and humanity. That's good news. The only person who could save us 
would be a God-man. And that's who Jesus is. Second, if Jesus is God, then he reveals to us what God is like. John says, no one has seen God, the only Son, who's truly God and is closest to the Father, has shown us what God is like. You want to know God? Get to know Jesus. Are you troubled by the Old Testament? Join the club. Look at Jesus. You know, it drives me nuts. I hear people trying to find the Lord and come back to God. And, and so they start in Genesis 1. And, and by themselves, they try to make their way. And by the time they get to the middle of Leviticus, it's, they become Buddhist or something. You know, it's just, don't, don't start in Genesis 1. Start in John 1. And then we'll fill in the, the background as, as we go. Jesus reveals what God is like. If your trip towards God has been disrupted because of intellectual problems you have with the Old Testament... That's very valid. But remember, Jesus reveals what God is like. If Jesus is God, then his word can be trusted. Fair? I mean, if he really is God, his word can be trusted. Some of you are thinking, can I trust the manuscripts and the Gospels? I'm not going to go into that tonight. I'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about that. I do believe we can. This means that when Jesus says he's preparing a place for us in heaven, we can trust that he truly is told Sandy last night, we, we were having a little date, and I found um, this, this, actually I was reading this thing in the New Yorker that was making fun of counselors, and there's this new book out about 21 questions guaranteed to cultivate intimacy in a relationship, and so the New Yorker had a piece on 21 questions guaranteed to end your relationship, and, and so I was reading that, and they were terrible, and, but then I thought, well, I'm going to go find the right 21. And uh, so I looked it up, and I, I don't think I ever found it, but I found somebody's 21. And so that's one of the things we do on our dates, is we, we ask ourselves these questions. And, and last night on our Valentine's date, one of the questions uh, had, had something to do about, you know, what you'd change or, or what you're afraid of, and we were talking about it. And it was good to slow down enough to think about that, because uh, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot lately, given some of the experiences of some of you and some of my other friends, is... Uh, is uh, mortality, just how, how fragile we, we, we are and uh, how, how quickly life, life goes. And uh, I've, I've been thinking about death a lot, more than, actually more than I wish I was. Um, and the all, I've never been the guy that just could say, shoot me now because I'd rather be in heaven. Um, I've always wanted to have that kind of faith. I don't have that kind of faith. I believe in heaven. But I'd, I'd rather uh, not get there for a while. And where I come back to, where the only thing I hold on to is that if Jesus Christ is really God, and he said he was turning down a pillow for me on the other side, I can trust that. If Jesus is God, we can trust what he says. If Jesus is God, then he is worthy to be worshipped. And I think we get that confused sometimes. Scripture says so many comforting things about Jesus and his humanity. We're going to look at that next week. He's God with us. He's our elder brother. He's our good shepherd. He says, I call you friends. And we we just really love the buddy Jesus. You know, we we love the, the footprints in the sand. Jesus, the, you know, the Jesus take the wheel Jesus. And, 
And that's a good thing, because he does take the wheel. But we also need to remember that he's God. And that he is worthy of worship and adoration and awe. Lastly, if Jesus is God, then we should surrender our lives to him. Come, he says to the disciples, follow me. He says the same to us. If he really is God, then we want him to author our story. And he's the one who we should surrender to. Let's pray. Thank you.